0: This is your house. These are your neighbors' houses. How many of these neighbors do you know by name? Go ahead, try to name them. If you're like most people these days, you probably only know a few of your neighbors by name. We have garages for our cars, privacy fences for our backyards, and we seem to be perpetually busy. You're doing pretty well if you wave or say hi as you're passing by. But what if we did more? What if we made it a point to learn the names of the people who live on our block? What if we took the time to listen to our neighbors and find out what makes them tick? What if our neighborhoods relied on each other in times of need, whether it be for a cup of flour or a shoulder to cry on? What if Jesus really meant that we should love our actual neighbors? Imagine the difference you could make in your neighborhood if you got to know your neighbors better.
1: Yes, imagine that. Welcome to 2019. And like many of you, many of my recent conversations have involved looking back. Boy, we got a ring. Looking back, looking forward, failed resolutions, new resolutions, closing chapters, new chapters, uh, the latest diet. I'm going to exercise. We've all been there. It's the time of year that we do such things. For me personally, it's. A, I try to make it a point to spend some time with Second Corinthians chapter thirteen verse five. It may be familiar to you. It says, "Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves?" That Christ Jesus is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. For the last couple of years I've asked you the question this way. Or when I've had the opportunity to stand up here at this time of year. I've said, are you certain that you're closer to Jesus now than you were at the beginning of the year? Do you know it? Is there any evidence whatsoever to anybody else? that you're closer to Jesus. I have to tell you, that is an exercise that, obviously, the verse is asking whether or not you have placed your faith in Jesus. But for those of us who are very confident that we have and that we're walking with him, Testing ourselves is something that we need to do on an ongoing basis. We need to challenge ourselves. We need to stretch. We need to try to be more and more like Christ as much as we possibly can. With having that examination in mind, this morning we're going to look forward into 2019. And John has given me the privilege to share with you our theme, as you just saw in the video, for this year is to love our neighbor. Our primary text this morning will be... Luke chapter 10, which many of you know is the Good Samaritan chapter. We're not really going to get into the Good Samaritan so much as we are going to discuss the exchange that Jesus had with the lawyer before he went into the parable. So let's pray and get into our text. Father, I am grateful that you are working on each one of us and that you are good and that we that love you We'll do our best in this coming year to be the children that you want us to be. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me this morning to um, convey the words that you have given me out of this text. And we'll give all of our thanks to you, Jesus, for I pray in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 starts, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. In this passage, we have all the information we need to understand how we're to love our neighbor. Look with me at verse 25. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Notice how Jesus responds. He knows he's being tested. Jesus understands the lawyer's trying to set a trap for him. What does Jesus do? Does he call the lawyer out? I mean, he could have. But instead of calling the lawyer out, he simultaneously established a framework while asking two thought-provoking questions. The framework was based... Jesus knew he was talking to a Jewish lawyer. This is a man well-versed in God's Word. And the questions? What is written in the law? And how do you read it? Loving our neighbor as Jesus loved them is going to require some work on our part. When seeking to establish a framework, understanding the worldviews of our questioner matters. When Je- what Jesus models for us here is a civility we seem to have lost in recent years. Jesus knows his questioner, and the questions he asks are consistent with the lawyer's worldview and understanding. Worldview matters. Being courteous and civil and respectful matters. CNN and Fox jumped immediately to mind for me as the most vivid, glaring examples of differing worldviews. If someone doesn't fit their narrative, we all know what happens. They're out. And they're not just out. There seems to be a grand effort to try to make them look as foolish as possible. They just, they just simply don't get it. It's not what Jesus does here. And it's not just the media. We collectively have lost a great deal of our ability to engage one another civilly the second we determine that someone doesn't look at the world the way we do. They don't share our worldview. They don't have our background. They're not from here. You don't understand. But... Look at what happens here. Respectfully engaged. How does the lawyer answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you've studied your Bible very long, you know that what the lawyer is reciting is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 5, this is essentially verbatim what it says in that verse. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was being quizzed by a different lawyer, apparently. And Jesus quotes the exact same text. But while Jesus was quoting it, he included a couple of things that I think are instructive. For one, he said the first and the greatest commandment is love your God. And the second, love your neighbor. And then Jesus went on to say that all of the law and the prophets hang off of those two commandments. As we'll discuss shortly, words have a lot of meaning. And Jesus is using some powerful words here. As very typical of our Lord, he was direct. The most important thing, the greatest thing any of us can do is love God. What's the next? Love our neighbor. And now if it's that important to Jesus, I would think it should be that important to us, no? Back to our text. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "And who is my neighbor?" And there it is right there in one single verse. We have why religious folks, people who we think should know better, often fail. Desiring to justify who? Himself. Asked, who's my neighbor? He can recite Deuteronomy 6.5. He's got it. He can wring it off just like that but he doesn't own it. It's not part of who he is. It hasn't made one lick of difference in his life from God's vantage point. Before we can love our neighbor, we must examine ourselves and determine our position concerning the greatest commandment. Do we love God? we got to start there. Because before we can love anyone really love them, we have to love God first. Now, while thinking about that, ask yourself this question. Which matters more? What I think about my neighbor or what God thinks about my neighbor? Here, Joshua sums up quite nicely for us in chapter 24, verse 15, a familiar verse to most of us. Come it choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in land in whose land you dwell. In other words, are you going to serve your family and your heritage from wherever it is that you're from? Or are you going to serve the community in which you now live? Or the third option that Joshua gives us, which is what? But as for me and my house, we're going to serve who? The Lord. When considering your neighbor, whom will you serve? The culture of your heritage? The culture where you live? Or the Lord? Presuming you are a believer, how you answer that question will have a lot to do with where you are in your faith walk. If you were here with us last summer, you may recall this map that I'm throwing up here. Thank you very much. And... In this, if you struggle every day more with what your family thinks, whatever race you come from, have profiled, what, for whatever community expectations there are on you, if that's a struggle with you and you struggle with that more than what God has commanded, and by that I mean struggle, it's not the priority of your life then chances are you're going to find yourself where I've circled on that map. You're somewhere between where you're still pretty self-focused in the way that you're viewing your faith and at least more so than kingdom-focused. But you're not alone. I mentioned CNN and Fox earlier. Unfortunately, and sadly I might add, much of Christianity behaves a lot like Fox and CNN, like a competing network. There's too much shouting, not enough caring. And for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, the church has spent an enormous amount of time and energy trying to make culture conform to Christianity. And I hate to say it, that's simply just not the way that Jesus set it up from the way I read scripture. Love God, love your neighbor period. There are no caveats. I've read it. There's no addendum. Jesus didn't add, by the way, you don't really have to love them if they don't conform to your worldview. There's none of that. There's love God, love your neighbor, period. Now, Paul gives us some insight on how that should play out. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, after having described for us four different kinds of lost people, in verses 20 and 22, at the end of verse 22, he gives us his personal strategy for engaging his neighbor and unbelievers. In verse 22 it says, I have become all things to all people that by all means some might be saved. Paul clearly took loving his neighbor literally. In fact, very much like Jesus, Paul made it a point to understand who he was talking with and he adjusted himself accordingly. Paul didn't waste time or energy asking who his neighbor was or trying to sort that kind of stuff out. He knew that everyone was his neighbor. Everyone. The only question was for Paul, how am I going to engage them? So how might that look? How might it look to be all things to all people today? D.A. Carson pictured here is a well-respected Canadian theologian. John shared with me a video sometime back before Christmas, and I'm really glad that he did because I was having a struggle trying to peel out all the bits that really didn't need to be part of this talk. And D.A. Carson pointed out That 50 years ago, in America, America was still quite culturally Christian. Most people had a general exposure to the Bible. Easter was about the resurrection of somebody named Jesus. They knew that Christmas was about his birth. People sang carols back then, even if they didn't believe. Everyone sang carols. And that was all part of just being part of Christianized America. But he then went on to point out, he says, even if you were dealing with an atheist back then, you were dealing with a Christian atheist. Now, that seems a little bit like an oxymoron, but what he meant is the God they refused to believe in was the Christian God. Now, Eh, God, is there a God? There is no God. There are many gods. And, so, and on and on it goes. I just found that fascinating. So broadly speaking, 50 years ago, there was a Christian framework through much of the country. Now, obviously we've all had sport with the fact that I'm clearly not from here. <laughs> all right? But where I am from, 50 years ago, I can tell you was never at that point anywhere nearly as Christian as here, okay? But here isn't nearly as Christian as it used to be, okay? In that whole kind of cultural, this is sort of the way we do things around here, sort of aura of Christianity or Christian expectations, community expectations. We don't talk like that here, I know. It is no longer the case. Today, we're more likely... Oh, I forgot one, one thing. And I do want to point this out. Because 50 years ago, the Ten Commandments, pretty much everybody knew them in America. And pretty much everyone thought that they were a good thing. In fact, when you met an unbeliever... Wouldn't you attest to the fact, those of you that are old enough to be able to have context 50 years ago, wouldn't you say that people, even if they weren't believers, would, would engage you and start telling you how they measured up against the Ten Commandments? Well, you know, I don't do thus and so. I'm not, a, you know, I've never murdered anybody. I don't really cover my neighbor's stuff. I don't even like him, you know, and, and, and so forth. But they would do it based on the Ten Commandments as a framework. Now we're ripping the framework off of the courthouse walls. Okay? There's a book that's out. It uh, was out about 20 years ago now. It's called Who Moved My Cheese? And if you're not familiar with it, it's an illustrated little book. It's about 32 pages long. It's, uh, it's done with some mice and some characters, scurry and hem and ha, and, and it's just really hilarious. But the point of it is, is that it was a book that described how different people deal with change. Change is a constant, and it's picking up steam, and it's coming to a town near you, including Bainbridge. Today, you are more likely than ever to engage people who are complete biblical illiterates. They have no idea that there are two testaments in the Bible. They don't know who Abraham is. They don't know anything about the law. They think Moses is probably a basketball player, and they... And and they don't even know what Easter is celebrated for. Carson pointed out that he he knows his fifth grade teacher in a suburb, in a predominantly white suburb that was pretty affluent. And if you would think that there was any vestige of Christianized, historical Christianity still there, it would have been in that community. And in this public school, he asked 28 fifth graders, this teacher... I'm sorry, it was a her. She asked, How many of you know why we celebrate Easter? Twenty-eight. Public school recently. Got a guess? Three. Now, public school here in Bainbridge, I'm guessing better than three, but not a lot. This is our challenge. Today, if we dare to love our neighbor, we no longer have a framework where we can just sort of jump in. It's just, I'm I'm sorry, it's not nearly as Christianized as it used to be, and I wish it was so. But what hasn't changed, let me tell you what hasn't changed God's greatest commandments or his commission simply hasn't changed. God's still about love me, love your neighbor and then go make disciples, plain and simple. It's really very, it's not a very complicated formula, to be honest. Carson went on to contrast how differently Paul engaged the Greek pagans in Acts chapter 17 from the way that he engaged the Jews in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, completely different. Different passages. You have a little bit of time. They're, sh- they're not re- they're not really long chapters. Read how Paul engaged the the Greeks in Antioch and the Jews. I mean, the Jews in Antioch and the Greeks um, in chapter seventeen. I mean, it's just completely different because he knew he had a different that, that his audience came from a different place, had a different understanding. And he adjusted accordingly, and we would do well to do likewise. And that is why, next Sunday, we are beginning a Life Prep You series that we've entitled Contagious Life. Six weeks, I'm trying, could be a little longer. But, <laughs> the, the simple truth is, is that I'm condensing a 12 and an 18 week thing into... I'm acknowledging that all of our attention span is no longer good for 12 to 18 weeks. It's just that simple. We've we got get to it, baby. I mean, you guys, right now, you guys are wanting me to kind of keep mo- get, get moving, right? So our scripture for the series is Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's a great verse. I mean, I've read it, like many of you, I've read through that, and it just, bang, it's just so on point here. Our basic objective will be living to share Jesus, intentionally, learning how to be evangelical without using words like evangelism, conversing with our neighbor while avoiding the use of church words mentioned words a little bit earlier. Last week I sent a text out to several of you and I asked you, what's the first five church words that came to mind? No further explanation was offered. It was just a text. Hey, I'm working on my sermon. Help me out. I need the first five church words to come to mind. I also sent that text and request to people from my former business life. People that are not believers. People that aren't churched. And they are different lists. <laughs> Church folks, not surprisingly, rattled off some very familiar words, right? Sin, salvation, redemption, gospel, prayer. Those who are a little bit longer, it have been at the whole faith walk thing a little bit longer, they liked even longer words. Redemption, sanctification, evangelism, propitiation, one of my very favorites, and discipleship. All words common to us who are sitting here to some degree. Now, the unchurched, the non believers, they had a different list of words adultery, immorality, marriage, church word, sin. Well, they got that one. Family, family, family is a church word. See the challenge? These are the words the unchurched and the non-believer consider church words when they're not given any further context. It's the things that they associate with you religious types. D.A. Carson pointed out that we can't even be certain people that we meet will agree with us on the meaning of the words that we use. Even here in Bainbridge, I can tell you that's true. I've personally experienced that at the Bean. And to be clear, very clear, it is not the responsibility of our neighbor to get up to speed with our words. Okay? Just let that sit there for a second. Because God commanded us To love them, not the other way around. It is not their duty to conform to my worldview, my preferred worldview, the way I like things, the way that my family used to do it. That's not how we do it here. That's not what Jesus or Paul is instructing us. That's not it. Love God, love your neighbor, get on with it. It's about you being more intentional about figuring out how to engage someone that's not going to agree with you on anything, not even what the word sin means. Now, since Thanksgiving, I've been working on memorizing First Corinthians 13, which is what? The love chapter, right? Love is, let's see if I can do this, love is patient and kind. It an, doesn't envy is an arrogant or rude self-absorbed or easily angered love does not keep track of wrongs it does not delight in evil rather it rejoices in truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things why Because love never ends. Now, I promise you I haven't been doing that to try to impress you. What I've been doing that and why I've been doing that is because all of you who know me know I am not the most patient man that has ever been born. (laughs) Put me behind the wheel of a car. I am not the most considerate individual who has ever driven a road. But I do understand that God accepted me. And I know who I am even as much as you do. And that means I need to be more loving. I need to be more conscious of it. I need to have that in the forefront of my mind. Every morning in my quiet time, I go through, and because I'm a techie and left-brained, I've got little acronyms so that in my head, D-I-E means delight in evil. You know, so I mean, I, I mean, I'm doing that, so for me, it works. What's you, what do you have to do? What's the thing that you need to consciously, intentionally need to do in order to love your neighbor? In order to be intentional about wanting to engage them, to care and love God enough to l- love your neighbor, which is what He does, to see them with His eyes, not yours. You know, I was at Parker Paint on uh, what was it, Thursday, and one of his representatives was there. Guy who sells them, I think, the uh, the, the paint supplies. And as Brian and I do, we're kind of chatting about solving all the issues of the world. And, and when we were talking about this challenge of loving our neighbor and being civil, and how we have lost our civility, he just summarized it all and just said, that's impossible. It's impossible. What was the other word that he used? Hopeless.
0: It's
1: just Hopeless. Fine, (laughs) because frankly, for most of us, that's exactly where we need to be in order to get it because it's God-sized. To be able to love my neighbor and for you to be able to love your neighbor and to have eyes to see your neighbor with the eyes that God sees means it's, I have to tell you, you can't do it. You cannot do it. It's beyond your capability. And to me, that's the good news That's not the thing. I'm not going to get defeated about that. I'm not discouraged. I'm encouraged because what I know is is I need to spend more time in the morning when before I put my Bible down, before I'm done with quiet time, and before I've done, I've got it. There are days, well, let's face it, every one of us have those days where we got through it. It's time to move on. And there's others where you you just feel like you're dripping in it. And that's just the nature of people being people. But what we want to do with contagious life is to get you to see your neighbor in the way that God sees them and here's the thing about God God our God the God we serve is a God of means God chooses in his providence and in his sovereignty he likes to work in and through us I have no idea why he wants to do that but that's the way he works and that excites me so A contagious life is counterintuitive. It isn't trying to do something for Jesus. And let me make that very, very clear. This is not about something you do. This is about something you are. Right? A contagious life is about being someone an unbeliever would want to engage. Try smiling. It's unbelievably contagious. Our Contagious Life series will help you prepare to engage people who probably think you're an idiot. Okay? So here's the outline. And as you can see, we plan to address many of the most pressing and often contentious issues of our day. Is it ambitious? Oh, Heck yeah, it's ridiculous. But this is what we've got to do. Our goal is that we all seek to be more contagious this year, prepared and willing to engage and love our neighbor, that we would live out our love for God and Jesus and our neighbor actively, intentionally every single day with purpose. I hope you will join me at 9:15 and yes, we will start at 9:15. Won't we? I'm looking at my group. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, my prayer for us in 2019 is Joshua's prayer. That we would choose to serve Jesus in, in in more than our preferred traditions or our community or what our parents expect or whatever. That it would be the year we love you and our neighbor in such a way that when we get to the end of 2019... And we examine ourselves then, Lord, that we will know that we are in you, you are in us, by how we lived, and others will be able to know it too. Thank you, Jesus.